experience Dungeons and Dragons like you've never experienced before. So, girls, tell us about Dave. So, tell me Dave's how great a little drunk and all. Feel the tension. Like some chips. They don't have any chips. Feel the excitement. 29 more javelins. You gonna throw another javelin? Well, 29 more. Duh. Epic storytelling. This island, as all the locals know, is the island of Atlantis. And you are not welcome here. And with no swearing or profanity of any kind. Ah, uh, jeez. <laughs> this is... Dungeons and Dragons and Daughters. Find out more at DungeonsDragonsDaughters.Podbean.com, your favorite podcast service or preferred social site. We're also on YouTube. Dungeons and Dragons and Daughters is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network. Find out more at www.blockpartypodcastnetwork.com. Well, welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. I'm your host for today, Dungeon Master Mitch, and we have an awesome episode coming up. We are talking to author Daniel M. Ford, and today's topic is going to be focusing in on the worshipers of deities. Specifically, we're going to be looking at church structure and differences between the common, the layman worshiper, and those who are actually in an order, a church hierarchy, paladins, clerics. But before we get into that goodness of the meat, let's do some five-star reviews for today. Our first one comes from Australia, and it's from Hafty Lover. Shout out from Oz. Five stars. I started listening in the middle of last year and have been reaping the rewards ever since. Every bit of lore, every bit of inspiration, and every DM joke is podcast gold. Keep up the encouraging work, guys. You are filling a need all across the globe. Love, DM Dojo. Thank you so much, DM Dojo, for that awesome five-star review. We appreciate it. Our next review comes from Norway, and it's from Nekmaz. It's entitled... Greetings from Norway, five stars. I've never DM'd. Actually, I've never even played D&D or any other role-playing game, and I still enjoy this podcast to my heart's content. And if that doesn't convince you to listen to this podcast, I don't know what will. I listen to this podcast for like six to eight hours a day while working. I work at a dairy factory, not that it matters. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Nekmas. Hey, You've never DM'd, you've never played a D&D game, you've never played a role-playing game. I think it's time, if you haven't already, that you change that, because it is fantastic. Playing, DMing, hope that you have already gotten the chance, and if you haven't, I hope that you get the chance to do so soon. Thanks again for writing in those reviews, and with that, let's head to the meet. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? The flat meat's back on the menu, boys. 
So welcome to another segment of The Meet. I am joined here today with Daniel M. Ford, the author of the Paladin Trilogy. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on. Excited about the topic we're here to talk about today. But before we jump into our topic, I'd like to ask you a couple questions. Can you start off with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, whatever that entails that you'd like to tell us about? Sure. Uh, I'm a fantasy novelist and a gamer. I've been playing D&D and other games for 25 years. And um, I think if you read the Paladin trilogy or you've read the first book of it, you maybe that should be obvious, I would hope. Um, I've had people say that they could hear the dice rolling in the background in some of the scenes, <laughs> um, which is definitely intentional. And the Paladin trilogy is a, is a fantasy series, exactly what it says on the tin. It's about a paladin and a group of people trying to change the world, sort of a superhero origin story in a fantasy world. That's fantastic. So you started pretty young playing role-playing games. Yeah. How much of an influence would you say that, obviously you just told us that they've influenced yeah. the way that you've written stories. Would you say that it was a pretty big influence in getting you to the point of being an author in general? It was definitely part and parcel. It, it helps me write. It helps me be creative. It helps me think about stories and narrative and character and how they're all related. And I try really hard to write character-driven stories hmm. as opposed to plot-driven stories. And I feel like the best D&D campaigns are more character-driven, right? Nobody likes to be railroaded. You want yeah. your character's choices to make a difference. That's a huge part of it. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's a that's a good thing that we've talked about on the show before, that a good DM takes that into account, that without the characters, there is no story, and so make yeah. them a central part. That's fantastic. And you've taken that to your writing. you got to be a fan of the characters. Exactly. So can you tell us a little bit about this trilogy that you have, the Paladin trilogy? Sure. Uh, the Paladin trilogy, like I said, it's kind of a super heroic origin story set in a fantasy world. You have this battered old warlord and knight named Alistair, who uh, is, for reasons you don't really know in the first book, is walking away from his life of privilege and power and leadership. And uh, he winds up coming across this village that's been more or less destroyed, and he finds this one survivor there, this 11-year-old girl, and she sort of convinces him to go after the other survivors who've been kidnapped uh, into slavery. And I don't want to get too much into a plot summary, but the, the things he does, the actions he takes, draw the attention of kind of a solar goddess. Uh, who makes him a paladin, which in, in the world that it's set in, a paladin is something very uncommon. There are priests, there are major religions, but there haven't been paladins in a long time. And tells him, you know what, change the world, make the world a better place. I'm not going to give you a prophecy or fate or destiny or nothing. Here's your powers, here's what you can do. There's other people you need to find, and, and they are given powers throughout the books as well. And it's about taking those powers and making the world a better place without being led by the nose uh, along with a prophecy or destiny. There's no magic sword you're going to find that's going to go make the world a better place. Right? you got to do it yourself. And all your books are available for purchase, but also they're on Audible, the whole trilogy. Mm -hmm. So any of the, our listeners yep. who want to can go, so they can buy them in trade paperback or that you can yep. go on Audible and purchase them. Yep. I myself was able to listen to the first book on Audible and like what you were saying is so true. I remember specifically from the book, every time the paladin character came across a new character, they were kind of treated like an oddball because they were such a, there aren't, like you said, many paladins in the world that you've created. 
Yeah, it was more to that uh, one of the things the goddess lays on him. Um, I, I I take playing paladins very seriously. And if you play a paladin in one of my games, I'm going to put extra restrictions on you. And one of the things she tells him is um, he's not able to tell a lie, right? He's not able to speak an untruth. Not And he can't just not answer a question, Yeah. right? It goes beyond that. If somebody asks him something, he has to say the truth. And people don't necessarily like hearing the truth and they're often shocked when they hear the complete unvarnished truth which i think is one of the reasons people treat him so oddly and react to him so strangely like what do you, what do you mean why did you answer my question that bluntly well you know that's who he is yeah the truth is certainly not the easy way yeah. uh, most of the time right so we have a surprise question for you this one comes from one of our patreon dragons finally found a hobby is who gives us this question and she asks, if you were a villain in a D&D campaign, what would be your ultimate goal? What would be my ultimate goal? If I was a villain, what would be my ultimate goal? Probably, I'm trying to think of the villains I have created, but they're all they're, they're all pretty terrible. I don't want to associate myself <laughs> too much. So I'm going to go with stamping out certain uh, improper, I don't know, because I'm an English teacher, um, Stamping out certain improper grammar practices, I guess. I don't know. Fantastic. That, fits, that fits the theme, right? <laughs> that fits the theme. That's great. That would be a yeah. very interesting villain. I'd like to play in that campaign. Right, right. <laughs> a, a villain who is just determined to get everybody to speak a certain way, which would probably be wrong because most of the things you think you know about grammar are wrong anyway. <laughs> One of the characters is uh, Paladin of Free Speech and coming up to yeah, fight Daniel M. Ford, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the grammar villain. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Finally found a hobby for that question. And thank you, Daniel, for that answer. Let's jump into the topic we're here to talk about today, which is in a fantasy homebrew world or in a setting that is already created. We're going to talk about today the worshipers of a deity. We're going to talk about the church of a deity or a temple. We're going to talk about how that affects the world around it. And we're going to talk about even the worshipers when it comes down to the clergy, to the layman. So let's start off and let's talk about the effect of a church or a temple or a just a body of worshipers of a god. How is it that they can affect a society a world, or even specific to a D&D group, an adventure that's being taken. Starting with the world, I mean, if you look at historical examples, churches and religions have been wildly influential, right? Mm -hmm. It's, And if you look at medieval Europe, which so much of the base of the hobby is taken sort of from medieval European history, they were how society organized itself, right? They thought of themselves as Christendom first and, and Italians, Germans, whatever, later. But even in other societies, um, if you want to drag yourself out of the medieval European stuff that so much of the hobby is rooted in, then it's it's the same, right? It's massively influential. It's how society is organized. It's how, you know, they hold the keys to the afterlife, right? Nothing's more important than that. You, you're going to be alive for maybe 35 years in a D&D world, right? Or maybe 70, but you're going to be alive after that for a lot longer. I mean, it's. I don't know that you can find any society where religion hasn't played a huge role in how it organized itself and how they acted. So the influence is going to be large. It's just a matter of what kind of influence you as the DM and the players want that to be, right? And I think that that's a point probably we're going to be making throughout the episode because it's so true that probably the greatest source of inspiration for 
a church's impact on society, the world, an adventure, or um, a, a religion or body of worshipers, all of this stuff that we're talking about, one of the greatest places to go for inspiration is our own history or even the world, the current events that are happening today. Because like you said, yeah, there's there really you can't find a society, a place that hasn't been affected by religion. Right. Even if you go to a place that is trying to leave and get to a place with no religion that is being affected because there must have been a catalyst to that yeah. where they are trying to get away from religion as a whole. Sure, absolutely. There's there's huge, you know, anti-clericalism was a major influence in the history of France following like the 1700s and you could easily model a society after that where where, you know, the people thought the priests, the temples, the churches had too much power and reacted to it negatively and I mean, I think that'd be a really interesting space for a D&D campaign to go, actually, where, you know, maybe maybe clerics are outlawed now. Maybe clerics, maybe clerical magic is illegal, right? But people might still want access to it because of the healing. I, there'd be a lot of cool things you could do with that, I think, as a DM, especially if a player wants to play a cleric and they're going to have to hide it. That's super interesting. There's been a lot of played out adventures and worlds that have come out of Dungeons and Dragons and fantasy role-playing games where you've seen some sort of arcane magic is illegal. And so you have like underground mages and such, but you don't hear a lot about worlds where, or countries or whatever it is where divine magic is outlawed. Yeah. And the idea of having underground clerics that you have to illegally go to in order to heal a certain disease or resurrect a family member would be a really interesting society to play in. Yeah, and that's actually, again, if we want to look at history, that's happened in so many places. It happened in the history of England and Ireland where Catholicism was outlawed. It happened in France where there were Protestant versus Catholic wars, Protestant versus Catholic wars in England. It happened in Japan um, where Christianity was outlawed. And then it, when Christianity became legal again, people had been following it underground for hundreds of years. Um, when the Russian Orthodox Church was essentially outlawed um, during the communist era, once it wasn't outlawed anymore, people still knew all the rituals. There were still priests. People still knew all the services. The churches filled up again. Um, you know, it, there's plenty of examples to choose from. And yeah, I can't think of a D&D world I Maybe a little bit in old school Dragonlance, where there was the whole the king priest and the cataclysm, but they all they had also stopped getting divine magic. Like that was part of the point. They were abusing their power, and the gods abandoned them. And he was perpetuating everything through arcane magic. So it was arcane magic oppressing people under the guise of being divine magic, right? And I can't think of one where divine divine magic had too much power, and people pulled them down because of it. Yeah, there's so. there's definitely examples that we could go to where certain the practice of certain religions are outlawed. And it usually comes down to if it's a quote unquote good aligned country, you have what what is the religion that's most prominent? It's going to be a good aligned God. Mm -hmm. And so evil gods are probably the worship of those are going to be outlawed. If you're in an evil aligned country, you're probably going to have the exact opposite. Right. But to totally and completely go, no, no, no. Clerics in general are outlawed in this country would be a really interesting. And I, I really like what you're bringing up there with history because it makes me wonder – about if you're going to DM a, a world and a, an adventure like that, and you have a player say, well, I would like to be a cleric, 
some DMs might immediately go, but it's it's illegal. You can't be a cleric in this campaign. That's an outlawed class. But to go, cool, you want to be a cleric. Well, cool, let's set up your underground church that you are that you run, that you're meeting with worshipers that like and every service you have to worry about is someone going to knock down that door and arrest all of us. I feel like that's exactly what I would want to happen. If I said, all right, you know, clerics are illegal, I would want not everybody to make a cleric. You don't want an all cleric party. But I I know some of my players would instantly say, well, I definitely want to play a cleric now. Right. And if you have somebody who wants to play a thief, well, who else are you going to ally with for keeping things underground than a thieves guild? Right. So you figure at that point now all the churches are paying the thieves guild protection money or, or, you know, money to help us hide that kind of thing. I just feel like there's a lot of ways to bring a player together to bring a party together doing that. Absolutely. You know, that might not you could have a, you know, a priest or a paladin of a lawful good God who suddenly has to hang out with a thief, which is one of the harder things to do as a DM, right, is to get those lawful good characters and those sort of chaotic characters on the same page. And I feel like it gives you a lot of a lot of options for doing that right away. Yeah, I, immediately you're thinking of well, a cleric can find uh, a great use and a great friendship in a rogue type character because maybe they need them to steal some things in order to use divine magic to heal yeah. their congregation yeah. or whatever it is. There's all these different options because yeah, the cleric in that society is in him in himself a rogue of some sorts because. He's going against the law. He's he's uh, not doing what is lawful in, in his land. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you would have... I can think of worlds that have, you know, mage hunters are a thing, but I, I'm trying mm -hmm. to think of a class that's built to hunt divine mages and I get divine clerics, but I, I feel like it wouldn't be that hard to make one to make, like, a new path for a wizard or something or for a fighter. That's fantastic. Like, the whole homebrew class completely yeah. focused on hunting down clerics. Just if, if we're talking fifth edition, just one of the just one of the paths, you know, like like the old kits, like the prestige classes from second and third edition. I'm dating myself by saying kit because uh, that's <laughs> that's second edition stuff. That's when I started playing. Yeah. But I mean, I can think of I can think of a few of them that have been fighters or paladins who are focused on hunting mages. But why? Why mm -hmm. couldn't you make one that's focused on hunting clerics? Yeah, absolutely. So other ways that uh, a church can affect I, I immediately went and thought of war holy wars sure. and once again going back in history to the crusades and how many wars have been fought because of one side saying like and that's that's the classic thing right that's what bob dylan sings about is the fact that everyone says god is on our side now mm -hmm. take that into a a fantasy world where you are actually have worshipers who actually interact with their deity and are getting magic from it, and you have these war between different societies or different armies, different worshippers based on the gods that they worship, and you can have all different types of wars. If you're playing in a fantasy world where there is prominent interaction with the gods and you don't have holy wars of some sort, I think you need to start thinking about what holy wars would spring up because of your gods. Yeah, absolutely. I think in, in your standard... D&D fantasy world where people know the gods exist, right? They have to. They're, they're directly granting prayers. You can cast guidance and you can cast communion and you can cast other spells that let, that let you talk directly to a god, right? It just raises the stakes so much more. Our god is with us and he's giving us powers. <laughs> Literally, mm -hmm. that we can see. We can, we can do miracles all the time. 
I feel like in the classic Forgotten Realms from back in the day before the Time of Trouble stuff, there were kind of implications that a lot of the gods had agreements not to go to holy wars. Like there were alliances, there were subtle wars, there were wars of assassination, and you were constantly looking to put one over on another church, but you didn't necessarily go to war, right? That was... And I could see doing that if you've got a big pantheon, right? And they're all kind of comfortable with the portfolio they have and the worshipers with they, that they have. But there's always going to be one God who wants a little more influence, right? There's always going to be one God. There, there's politics in hell, right? So there'd be politics in heaven. There'd be politics in the astral planes. And so at the very least, there has to be competition, right? There has to be conflict between the various pantheons. They can't all just get along all the time. That's no fun. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it probably it's you're always going to have to look at the specific gods and go, okay, what would a war start from? And it's going to be a lot more difficult when you're looking at the god of peace and go, all right, would they would they ever get involved in a war? And the answer might be absolutely not. Even if they're threatened, they might, it might be all about lay down your weapons, but then you could look at a God that has a, a hate hatred for another God. And you might have two countries that have had no problem with each other up until the point where one of them started worshiping this one deity that the other deity from the other country really hates. And they might, be demanded of to go to war that church those worshipers Mm -hmm. simply because of the worship of a god that they don't their god doesn't get along with yeah i mean that's we've done that throughout history (laughs) dozens and dozens of times hundreds of times and i don't know why people in a fantasy world would be any different right of course they're going to go to war over a different church over the wrong church (laughs) absolutely especially if the god literally appears to the worshipers to say, go to war with these people. <laughs> yeah, it is time. Draw your swords. Let's yeah. go. Yeah. Another thing that I definitely thought of is, and we've talked a little bit about this, but obviously politics should be strongly affected because of gods, especially like we said in the fantasy world where you know those gods are real because they are appearing, they are speaking to you, especially in a uh, theocracy. That's, I mean, sure. out of all types of government, that's going to be the one where if you're running a country that's uh, led by a theocratic government system, then I would say that's a really good time to start to think about who this God is, what their worshipers are going to be like, what the church structure is, which is something we're going to transition to talking about. But that's probably out of all the governments, a really important one to know what that structure and what those worshipers are going to act like when yeah. it's run in that society. And I think even even aside from the theocracy, right, you, if you're a lord or you're a king or you're a queen, you're whatever, a doge, a, a margrave, whatever, whatever titles you're using for the positions of power in your campaign, they're going to want to have, they're going to want to keep the dominant churches around them happy, right? They're going to want to keep them well-fed because you want access to the healing, you want access to the divination, you want access to the advice, you want access to the followers they they can muster and marshal. And I feel like you've really got to take that into account. To what extent does a, do, does the power structure share power with the, with local temples, with the most powerful churches? And to what extent do they just cede it to them Um, Is there tension there? Is there, you know, is there like a Cardinal Richelieu-like figure from France who is really sort of the power behind the thrones, pulling all the strands of the country, that kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. We've had monarchies in our world where it's the king and the queen themselves are afraid 
of upsetting the leader of a church structure because they're worried because they actually hold the power with the people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start uh, transitioning our discussion into if you are, especially if we're talking about a theocracy or just really any kind of society where a church or religion can really be influential. And as we've said, every society, it should be in some way influential. If you want to start building a church church structure for a specific religion, maybe the first thing to for us to talk about is when is the point as a dungeon master, as a game master, as a creator of a world that you want to actually start going, I think it's time to start working on a structure for my church. I think as soon as it has more than like 50 followers, right? Because at that point, people are going to factionalize, people are going to form their own splinters. You can see that with there are, you know, there are splinter church groups in America where there's 100 people and then there's a split and there's 50 of them and then they split and there's 25 of them. So people are always going to split. People are always going to make schisms. So I think as soon as there's as soon as there's more than just a few people in one village worshiping a god, there has to be a structure or it's going to fall apart, right? Or it's going to completely fall apart to the next thing that comes along. And you know, the more I think about it, that would be I think that would be the basis for a really cool campaign if you could get the players on board sort of if i had to des- if i had to describe the the paladin trilogy as a campaign i would say it's about the formation of a new church right it's about the creation of a new church mm-hmm. you could base an entire campaign on that where you if maybe one or two of them are divine magic users like one cleric one paladin and if you can get the rest as they're worshiping some local folk hero or some local saint as you know uh worthy of worship as worthy of deification then make that the campaign and and one thing make the players do the work if you can right save yourself the trouble make them figure it out <laughs> how are you going to build the church but i think that could actually be a lot of fun i think that's a fantastic idea getting like when and how do you start implementing this i think getting the players to be involved or even just to take charge of that is mm-hmm. fantastic especially if you're presenting it in the sense of like you could play an entire campaign where that's one of the biggest points of the campaign is structuring this church. And so you could have, uh, you could throw at them all these issues that they have to deal with and forming this hierarchy or whatever it is can be the goal of this campaign. Or you can, if you're sitting down you're like, all right, so you're going to be a, a paladin or a cleric of such and such a God. You know what? I'll be honest. Um, I don't have a lot planned out for that, but I love the fact that you want to start worshiping this God and you want to be one of their clerics in this campaign. Why don't you like, if you're interested, why don't you start working on a little bit of a, what does the hierarchy look like? What does the church structure look like? I'd love to see your creativity. And I don't think this is like us, you know, me and you, Dan are saying like, Hey, give your players homework if they don't want to. But I know I've done that with a player before and they like, they were like, wow, really? That's fantastic. And they came back to me with like three typed up pages of church structure and rituals and the hierarchy and what every member of the hierarchy, the different color of their robes that they would wear or the symbols that they had and the names that they had. And it was like some players might not want to do that. And that's okay. And some players might be like, Absolutely. And then you're given all of this awesome material to use in this campaign that you're playing yeah. in. 
as a player, I'm definitely the one who will sit down and I'll, I'll churn out pages of like ritual and how, why the church building is built a certain way. I love doing that. And I love it when players do it. And really the thing to do is just hold out XP rewards, right. As a thing hmm. or some other kind of rewards, um, to motivate the people who don't necessarily want to do homework. Um, I don't, I don't like to give players homework, but I try to phrase it as a, you know, everybody who sends me this bit of information that I'm asking for, you know, there'll be like a really minor sort of ribbon style magic item or an XP reward or some kind of bonus or benefit to your character materially for doing it. You don't have to do it, but you're going to make everybody's life easier if you do. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I think that depending on how long you've played with that particular player, there will be this understanding of you're not going to work on this and I'm going to throw it like into a book and never look at it again. Like you're working on this so that we can create yeah. amazing role-playing opportunities later. I think this might be even something that would be great to on here on our show. We talk a lot about doing a character creation night, which you just sit down with your players and you create the characters, you present what the campaign's going to look like. And together you sit at a table and work on like, do we know each other already? Like, what is your character's background? Like, and you work with your players on doing that. What a great opportunity to sit down with a player who wants to be a paladin or a cleric or whatever, a druid that worships a, mm -hmm. uh, a god of the forest and to talk with them and work together on that church structure, that church hierarchy, rituals that maybe they're going to be following holidays, you can get really in depth with it. And those are the things that if you work on holidays that your yeah. your PC is going to be interested in, then mm -hmm. all of a sudden that calendar that you as a DM have made, that player might be going, can I have one of those calendars? I'm really interested in knowing what day it is. And you're getting buy-in for them into the world, into the adventure, yeah. just because they've started working on these things themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what you most want, right? Everything you do as a DM is designed to make your players want to keep playing the game and want to get to the table and want to be invested in their character and invested in everybody else's character. And um, I think it'd be really neat to... I, I've never... Actually, come to think of it, I think I have seen conversions happen at the table where like one character is slowly like ground down over time and converted to somebody else's um, faith. I was trying to do that in the game I'm playing right now. I'm playing a cleric of Demathuin in a game and um, I was trying to convert the druid. And it, but it didn't work. It wasn't working. It wasn't going to work, <laughs> but it was fun to keep trying it. You know, like it was fun mm -hmm. to keep, it was fun to keep pushing it on him. But so I, I've been playing with the same group um, for most of them for almost 20 years my wife now for 11, another guy in the group for 11. And we just got a brand new guy to the group like a month ago, which is a little intimidating for him because we're making in jokes that we've been making since 1999. <laughs> he is, he's catching up, but it's, he's doing great. Yeah. That's fantastic. Speaking of church structure as well, I think something that probably is really important is if we're talking about this church structure of a specific God, I think that the alignment of that God is going to really play a huge part in how the church is structured, right? Like a lawful God, it's going to probably be a much more ordered hierarchy of, uh, or even just ranks than a chaotic God, maybe a chaotic God, depending on how chaotic it is. There are no specific ranks. There is no hierarchy. There may be a hierarchy, but it's not, it's not written down on paper. It's what's happening at the moment, right? Or even how you, progress in rank may be different. It's going to be different depending on 
if you're a good aligned God, if you're worshiping a good aligned God, or if you're worshiping an evil aligned God, right? Like going from feats of goodness and virtue or downright murder may be something that raises you up that rank. Yeah, I would think like if you were, if it was a chaotic evil God, there wouldn't be a structure and how you got power would just be dead man's boots, right? You kill the, you kill the person above you in the hierarchy, right? And, and then you induct more people and it would just be, it would literally just be chaos and the most powerful and the most violent and the most vicious would rise to the top, which would be exactly what that God would want. I think it'd be fun to create a chaotic neutral God who would grant most, the most power based on how amusing he found the, he or she found the followers. Like who is amusing me the most this week? All right, you've got a couple <laughs> extra spell slots, right? Cause chaotic neutral. And with a, a lawful church, you got to assume everything's going to be written down and there's a paper trail for everything. And, you know, in a lawful evil grand church, libraries and everything. Yeah. yeah. It's in a lawful evil church would be how well can you use the rules against your rivals right, to gather power for yourself as opposed to, you know, following the letter of the law as opposed to the the spirit of the law, right? That's how I read the lawful evil alignment anyway, is I want to make it appear that I'm doing the right thing when in reality I'm, I'm almost completely self-motivated. Yeah, something that you said about the chaotic evil, the worshipers and the church structure, like you have this, you can have this contrast of this lawful good church that is very well known. You you know when you're going to one of their temples because they may have some differences, but there there is this structure and this order to the way that their temples are built and they have the same dome type ceiling and you know, you know what church you're going into and every one of those churches is connected together and all part of the same order, but if you're going to the chaotic evil, uh, you may very well have just underground cult meetings and Mm -hmm. this cult over here doesn't get along with this cult over here because they think that they are the true worshipers of this God. And this cult over here that worships the same God is like, but our God's telling us to do this and you're going this way. And you may have literal infighting for power or just to slaughter each other because you don't agree on every specific thing. Yeah, and I would think a chaotic evil god would actually give their followers different commandments, right? Just to see who came out on top, just to see who is, who is most Absolutely. worthy of being invested with more power, right? Prove yourself by killing these other worshippers. Exactly. Yeah. I, I told you to wear, you know, black sleeves with red stripes, and I told them to wear red sleeves with black stripes, and we're going to see yeah. who comes out on top. <laughs> yeah, almost like this survival aspect yeah. of the strongest ones of you will be worthy of being my worshipers. Yeah. Uh, And the funny thing is that we're talking a lot about like the worshipers themselves here. Maybe the God themselves, the chaotic God, the chaotic chaotic evil God isn't even the one demanding the infighting, but (laughs) they're going to have no problem when, like you said, the black robes with the red stripes and the red robes with the black stripes are going at it, going, we need to prove ourselves because maybe that's completely something the worshipers have brought on themselves and something that they've come up with themselves. But it's totally fine with with yeah, this chaotic absolutely. evil God. Like you said, this is a world where these gods are known. And if some church structure is going against their God, what point is it that that God steps in and goes, hold up, this is not the way that I want this to be? 
Yeah, well, it, it depends on the world, right? I think that the standard D&D world that we've been talking about is the one where the gods are, are really present and you know they're there. But there are worlds out there where the gods are just kind of animated forces and they answer prayers, but they don't answer. I think it's Eberron and specifically says this. Um, when you use communion or, or one of those high level communication with my God spells, you never talk to the deity. You only ever talk to like a high level, high ranking, like angel or diva or planetar or whatever, because the gods don't answer people. They don't respond in that way. They're much more forces or principles of nature and not individuals. Right. So that's, that's one way to do it. Uh, just leave, let it be up to the leaders, right? Let it be up to the leaders. I actually, the last 5th edition campaign I ran, it was all homebrew, but the entire plot was sort of the players ultimately realizing that all of the gods of the Pantheon had sort of been replaced by one of them. And he was answering everybody's prayers and granting everybody clerical powers and telling them what they wanted to hear and showing them what they wanted to be seen because he had his own motivations for sort of having sealed off and taken control of the world and they were supposed to confront him and they wound up agreeing to work for him which was not really the outcome i saw happening there was no <laughs> final battle he just he made this outlandish proposal that they could sort of go explore other worlds for him on his behalf and they were like yeah that sounds good let's do that so but you know it, it depends on what kind of world you've set out and making sure the players know what kind of world it is they've set out when i when i talk to my god am i talking to my god and do i know it or is it just I say the right words and I get the right and I get the prayers and there isn't necessarily a divine force behind it? It might and it might be the world. Mm -hmm. It might be the gods themselves. Every god might be different in how much they interact and how much they actually care what their worshipers are doing. Some gods might just be like, my name is being praised. Yeah, that's what's bringing me power. I'm cool with it. And then like even in a world where gods are truly known that does not mean that there aren't going to be fake religions as well and I, I think the harder question that you have to answer then if you're playing in a D&D-esque world with this mechanic of clerics that actually get power is well if this is not a real religion whether the players themselves know it or not then where is that power coming from and a DD world you could have you were talking about like a trickster god before that isn't even related uh to the god that they're worshiping it could be a fake god with a trickster god or a demon behind it sure yeah i mean definitely you could see a demon or possibly even a planetar like a high-ranking astral you know good aligned extra planar being doing that because they want to make that leap to godhood, right? Um, I mean, I think that'd be an interesting villain to have. And suddenly the bad guy is a planetar instead of a, a Baylor or what have you. Absolutely. It could also, I mean, one way it could be, it could be a bard who just took all the healing spells and, <laughs> it's, and it makes really good, uh, you know, really good diplomacy and persuasion checks over and over again, or a thief with a good, uh, with access to like a small magic item factory, right? And they're just turning out like wands or amulets or things that, that a, a thief would then use to pretend they were doing the healing magic via using the magic devices and that kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities to do that with the, the false gods. Like it's not as hard as, I guess it's not as hard as it would be, as you think it would be at first blush to make a false god or a false religion. There's lots of avenues to do that. And that's a great point, too. The church structure is going to be probably different between a group of worshipers who all believe that their fake deity is real and a group of worshipers that are led by 
people who have created this false deity and are tricking them through arcane or bardic or whatever type of magic or just flat out charisma and tricks, right? Is it a con by the leader or is it a con by a god or, you know, there's so many ways to do that. So many ways. Uh, Last thing with church structure. So if our listeners really want to dive deep, one of the things that we mentioned really briefly, but that they could start working on is like literally working on different ranks and different positions within a church structure, which like we said, is probably going to look different when you go from that lawful side to the chaotic side. But what are some, if a DM wanted to start working on that, what's some advice that you would give to them on maybe where to start or how to do that in setting up specific positions and specific ranks within a church structure. I mean, I just do a little, just do a little research, whether it's research on long established D and D worlds. And I mean, I think like forgotten realms and Dragonlance and those that have been around for so long, they have so many titles and ranks and, and different things for their different gods. And you can kind of pick and choose among them as you like, or modify them, or, you know, research what actual, you know, priests were called. There's dozens and dozens of titles. I think we tend to have a very limited view. We know, you know, we know priest, rabbi, reverend, minister, probably imam, and maybe a handful more, but there's lots more out there that we don't even encounter anymore that we don't hear about. And you could easily fill books with uh, real religious titles and I wouldn't say just the titles, also think about the shape of the the churches, right? Like how are the buildings built based on the materials that are available to people? But how invested are they in the structure, right? Because if you look at the medieval Catholic church, they, they spent loads and loads of money and loads and loads of resources on building really elaborate cathedrals and basilicas that would take decades or hundreds of years to build and finish. You know, are your religions that invested in building physical spaces? Can they do it using magic, right? As opposed to actual, you know, physical tools, you know, how do the worshipers feel about that? To what extent are they involved in, you know, building and maintaining those spaces? And how does it fit into their their daily lives? And I guess now I'm starting to go down the rabbit hole of everything's connected and, and everything in the world that a, a well-built like homebrew world has to be more than the sum of its parts. But I mean, I also live by the principle that you only kind of have to be one page ahead of the players in the book, right? And so you don't have to have this all figured out completely on day one, right? Some of it you can fill in as you go. I think that's really important. I th- we probably should have stated that at the beginning, but like when we're talking about like, when do you do this? When do you start working on this church structure? I would advise, obviously it's up to you as the DM out there and creating your world, but I would advise to start tackling these things when they are actually something you're going to be using in your world when they matter yeah when they matter if you're playing in a country that is run by the church then you want to start working on what that church hierarchy and what that church church's goals is and how they interact with the people and what laws that they set but if you're not then maybe that church is something you put aside and go i'll work on that later if you're not going to explore a certain god in a certain adventure then you can kind of just have that god off to the side and say well when that becomes something we're focusing on that's when i should like you said start being a page ahead of the players and start working on that and start becoming interested in how all of this is laid out. 
Yeah, if you're, let's say you're doing a homebrewed world and you're just going to use like Nordic gods, right? You're going to use Viking gods and, and you know that one player wants to be a priest of Odin and another player wants to be a paladin of Baldur or something like that, then you, you need to know a little bit about that. But you probably don't need to spend a lot of time on the church of Frey or the church of Thor or the uh, if there's a cult of Loki because nobody's playing that yet, Has, right? Don't, don't kill yourself to build out every detail if you're never going to use it, right? There's nothing worse than filling a book with world building that never gets never gets used. Absolutely. So one last thing. Let's talk about one last thing here today. When you as a DM are running NPCs in your world, there's going to be a difference, right, between a clergyman and like we just talked about specific ranks of clergymen for an NPC, for a god, and the layman worshiper. How is it that as a DM, you can think about the differences of these type of worshipers from a high clergyman to someone that's a uh, simple priest to a, a layman. What are some differences that you can add into how they worship and who they are as people? One way you could do it is as you go further and further down the ranks, right, they're they're probably going to be less right about less correct about the theology, the actual theological underpinnings of the church, right? So, if you're if you're role playing a, a lay minister or a deacon who doesn't have a whole lot of education, just make him say mistakes like things that the players would know or suspect are probably wrong and probably not not correct theological positions that the church actually holds, right? Whereas a bishop or higher ranks like that, he or she is going to know what's what. They're going to know what they're talking about. So that's one way to inject a little, I guess, levity to it, right, is just have somebody make wildly inappropriate theological statements. Saying theological terms wrong, that like a high priest would 100% use it easily in a sentence, the layman might use it and totally butcher it, or even say, oh, the sacred texts say this, and you're like, I'm a paladin of that order, and I know not of what you speak of. Yeah, exactly. So... It, I, also, I guess the literacy rate of your world matters at that point, like because if there, if there's mm. holy books, like how many people have actually read them? Is there a printing press? Are books widely distributed? Are they readily available? Are they accessible? Does the church want the layman reading those holy books? Are they even in a language these people can speak? Or do they keep all their holy books mm. in celestial and the priest preaches in celestial and nobody knows what what in the world he is saying at church? But they go because you have to go because... That's what you do, right? I mean, the Catholic Church did everything in Latin. Yep. Most of those people didn't speak Latin. <laughs> they didn't understand a word that was being said to them. It, and that, and part of that, you know, keeps it mysterious and makes it more awe-inspiring and more seemingly powerful to people, right? How, in a world that has so many different temples, like, is there one day that everybody goes to church? Or is there a different day that everybody goes to church? Does everybody even go to church or is it, you know, drop in and, and light a candle and drop some coins at an altar and make a sacrifice when you feel like it? And that's all down to the down to the world building. But usually, like, the, the lay people are not going to be, their, their lives aren't going to be as dominated by it as, like, your cleric or paladin is. But it is still going to matter. They're going to show up for services. They're going to keep their calendar, how the church says to quite often. They're going to keep their day right? The, the day might be organized by the church bells, right? Might That might toll the hour, that kind of thing. Or it doesn't have to be bells, right? It can be church drums. It can be church uh, magical tones that they play using ghost sound or something. I don't know. You know, it's it's a magical world. Don't, don't recreate everything the way it is here. It doesn't have to be bells. 
I think specific devotion is another way to kind of show that difference. You have a high priest of a goddess, and that high priestess is all focused on that goddess and their holy days and their rituals, where maybe a layman is like, oh, yeah, I love the goddess so-and-so. I also love this God over here and this God over here. And depending on what's going on in my life is depending on what holy days that I'm going to go celebrate. And, and kind of speaking to going back to what you were talking about too, sometimes an ignorance of theology and such, you might have a layman who worships two gods that actually those two gods are at polar opposites and the priests and the high priests and whatever it is, the shamans of the church or whatever it is might go, we do not even associate with that other church because sure. because of the war that happened between those two gods millennia ago. Do you not know of yeah, this? Yeah, the, the layman is more interested, is probably a little more worried about how they're going to, what they're going to eat tomorrow, right? So they mm-hmm. might pray to different gods in different seasons. They might pray to different gods on different days and not be specifically devoted to one. Absolutely. Um, you might pray to the god of fire in the summer because you're hoping that wildfires don't destroy your crops. You might pray to the god of uh, the god of the sea or the goddess of the sea in the wet season so that you get you know lighter storm season, whatever. Um, it, it makes sense that they would be I think it makes a lot of sense. They would be focused on kind of which God can help me now, <laughs> which, which God needs to take pity on me right now, because I'd really like to live to see next week and next month and next year. Now, and the last thing that I, I was thinking about was even just um, the further up you go, probably the more chance there will be of corruption yeah. uh, within a church structure. A layman worshiper of the goddess, well, does do they even have a chance at being corrupted or are their motives pure in worshiping that goddess where if you go higher up, well, the more power that the church has uh, and the higher in rank you are, the easier it is to be a corruptible priest of such and such a God. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The more money is coming into the church and the more influence it exerts, the more chance there is for corruption, the more likelihood that some of that money is going to stick to somebody's hands, right? But I also think, at least I know with my players, they're so like cynical and jaded about that kind of thing that I think I could really hook them by, I think I could really hook my particular players by planting evidence to suggest that someone is corrupt when they really aren't. And the players would be so ready to believe it that I could see that being sort of a major twist in a campaign. Hey, you know what? We actually sent an innocent, hardworking, good, you know, bishop or high-ranking you know priestess of the goddess and we sent them to prison and well now we have to get them out (laughs) because i i think there's a tendency to look for that corruption now more and kind of expect it out of out of high-ranking um out of high-ranking religious officials because i just think we've seen it a lot we saw it throughout history right If, if you know european history you saw it over and over and over again in the church and i think we see it some today and i don't want to get into that too much but I know my particular players would expect it. They would absolutely expect that a powerful church person that's powerful in the church hierarchy is going to be a corrupt, going to be corrupt. And I would love to turn it around on them. And especially if you're dealing with secrets and a higher up ranking member of a church, not being totally open about something, they might be doing it for 
good reason right. uh, to protect people. Uh, it's something that they can't share about. But as soon as you hear, especially a, a PC and a player, that such and such person is not sharing information, yeah, that you immediately go to corruption. Like yeah. we need to we need to out this person, bring them down. And yeah, I think that's a good point. Is with players, like I think as DMs, we all know those times where we set up some sort of hook and our players go, ooh, they're evil or ooh, they're... And it's really frustrating when it's like, yeah, that's exactly what I planned. So maybe you need to think more about it and go, are they... Is this is this the classic thing that everybody's going to pick up yeah. on? How do I, like you said, flip this on its head and give them a good surprise? Yeah, I mean, maybe uh, the, right off the top of my head, I'm thinking maybe, uh, you know, high-ranking priestess has some... Is like making money that the church collects goes into some fund that nobody knows where it's going but what it's actually doing maybe she's paying wizards to keep wards on some local cemeteries to keep the dead mm. from rising and oh they arrest her they say it's you know it's corruption it's this and that and then all of a sudden the church the you know the place is swarmed with undead because that's what she was using the money to do right yeah like the consequences of that not yeah. actually occurring yeah are there's numerous story and plot hooks that you can drop in there um just with that so so, Dan, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. I think we had a great discussion today with lots and lots of inspiration on not only talking about how to structure a church, but I think we had tons and tons of adventure hooks and adventure ideas yeah. sprinkled throughout this episode. So I hope our listeners are just brimming with ideas now for different campaigns that they can start. Yeah. But if our listeners would like to get in touch with you or see more about uh, what it is that you're working on, where's the best places that they can go to for that? Best place is Twitter. Uh, I'm at sounding line on Twitter, but I mean, I think if you just search for Daniel M Ford, you'll find me pretty easily. I do have a website, Daniel I'm pretty responsive on Goodreads as well. On my author Goodreads page, if you leave a question there, guaranteed i'll answer it as soon as i see it um i'm kind of you know people can they can just email me via my website danielm4.com and i'll respond when i can um happy to talk about the gaming influences on on paladin or rpgs or anything like that fantastic go follow daniel and go check out the paladin trilogy whether you want to buy the books or you want to check it out on audible you will not be disappointed or ebooks um anywhere books are sold amazon barnes and noble Kobo, anything like that. And with that, thanks again, Dan, and we're going to head to the mailbag of holding. But they've been asking for their mail on a daily basis. It's all they're talking about up there. That right there is the mail. Now let's talk about the mail. Can we talk about the mail, please, Mac? I'm dying to talk about the mail for you all day, okay? Welcome back to another segment of the mailbag of holding, the place where we look at ideas, stories, and questions from you, the listener. Today we have an email from future DM Bruce. And future DM Bruce writes in and he gives us a really cool idea. He does say this is a real life story about a detective. He says it's not something that he made up, but not sure where the original source material is from this, but it's a great idea nonetheless. So let's talk about it. Let's see what Neil, let's see what we think about this idea. He basically brings up this idea of there being a, an NPC in your game this game that he's kind of laying out would be more of a noir type game. And there is a detective that's on the case of this criminal. He sets up the criminal to be a, like a serial killer, someone who is committing crime after crime after crime, murder after murder after murder. And 
this detective is like really good at his job. So he's the only one that's able to really piece together the trail that the serial killer is leaving. And so you have this NPC character, but then it turns out that this NPC has multiple personalities. And at night, he is no longer his detective self, but he's turning into this serial killer. He's the one committing the crimes. And thus, this is also part of the reason why he's able to piece together and really figure out exactly how it is that these crimes are being committed when he comes across the clues. And he lays it out that, you know, this NPC can be captured and he tur- he turns himself in and then because of that he spends his days as a detective and his nights locked in a jail cell because he would be out killing. But I thought this was a really cool idea for a twist. Like you could have this be an NPC that's helping your characters along the way, figuring out certain clues, telling them about this this criminal and telling them all the clues and trying to help them help him figure these clues out. And then in the end, it is that NPC that's been helping you the entire time, unbeknownst to them. Well, I like the idea too of almost not choosing exactly which NPC it would be because sometimes it's difficult to convince your, you know, convince your players like it needs to be this person. So almost having that as like a framework for whoever they latch onto. Like you can tell they're drawn to this person. Now it sounds more evil now that I've said it out (laughs) out loud. But like they pick this NPC. So you make it about that NPC rather than, you know, let's say you choose this druid, but then your players never go to the woods. Yeah. So I would definitely have that story ready for whoever they feel is the most important NPC to them and twist that around on them and make that MP, but take that and make that NPC more important. You could certainly, yeah, you could certainly have a couple of NPCs that are helping the players along. And then the one that they, maybe even just the one, depending on how tragic you want the story to be, the one that they connect the most with and, and find the deepest relationship with. Yeah. That's the one that it turns out. And then that's that's a huge moral issue that you're throwing out to your players as well. Well, and this character has multiple personalities, and the one personality is good and wants to bring this criminal to justice. And then it turns out he is the criminal, or she is the criminal. Yeah, and I would also not want to make it as cut and dry as you know, in the watered-down concept of you know, the best detective, the, the most good person that has ever existed, and the most vile evil in the mm-hmm. dark shadows. But another topic they brought up was maybe both of them have families, but because they're living these two mm-hmm. separate lives, you know, it could come about that you know, these people are really worried that you know, after this person's locked in their jail cell, we can't find our father or our husband anymore. And so making it, you know, ratcheting the moral <laughs> dilemma even farther yeah. up. Well, it could even be that the this serial killer personality is going around and knocking off people who were criminals, but were freed for some reason or got off scot-free and like, didn't have to pay a crime. And these are all criminals that this detective has dealt with in his past. And he's starting to see these clues, but he's unsure why it's all connected. And that would be the reasoning why. And another, and I'm not sure exactly when we got this email, but another really good example of that in current media would be if you watch Daredevil Season 3. Mm. So, there you go. Boom. So, thank you so much for that email, future DM Bruce. I hope that now, at this point, that we're reading this email on air, that 
we could just call you DM Bruce that you've been playing, that you've been DMing. But thank you so much for writing in with that awesome idea. Yes, thank you. And with that, we've come to another close of another episode of the Dungeon Master's Block. I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. I hope that you have gained a lot of inspiration from the discussion that myself and Daniel were able to have about worshipers of a deity. If you would like to email us to write in about worshipers and some of the rituals or the church structure that you've created in your own homebrew world, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. If you've liked what you've heard today on this episode, or if you've liked what you've heard in previous episodes, please take a moment of your time, head on over to iTunes, and give us a five-star review. If you do, we will be sure to read it on an episode in the future, just like we do in every episode of the show. You can follow us on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block. And you can like our Facebook page. If you want updates about the show, those are the best places to go for that. We have a Patreon member shout out of the week. And this week's Patreon member shout out goes to... Gerfrank! Thank you so much, Gerfrank. Gerfrank is a bronze Patreon dragon. So thank you for your support of our show and all the other Block Party Podcast Network shows. We super appreciate it. On our Patreon this week, along with this episode, the homebrew path for the fighter class, Priest Bane, created by myself, is available to gold Patreon dragons and up. This path for the fighters class was inspired by the discussion Daniel and myself had in this episode concerning when certain religious practices and the worship of certain gods becomes illegal in a area of a homebrew world and the warriors that would rise up and train themselves to fight against divine magic to seek out those worshipers. So check it out if you're a gold or higher Patreon dragon today. The Dungeon Masters Block is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network. Check out other shows like Geek Wars, The GM Showcase, Detentions and Dragons, and more. And with that, we're shutting down the computer, we're turning off the lights for this episode of The Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all other people at the table. I'm Dungeon Master Mitch, reminding you all to keep on Dungeon Mastering. like a serial killer someone who is committing crime after crime after crime murder after murder after murder murder and leaving <laughs> what did i say Mur- myrtle 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 oh no goodbye